Hi, I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Today on the podcast, what would make a wildly successful entrepreneur? One who launched a product sold in every Starbucks and worked in the West Wing for two presidents. Decide to switch gears and devote himself entirely to battling bigotry, hate, and anti-Semitism. If you, like me, closely follow the news about the rise in extremism and disgusting, hateful acts of anti-Semitism, his name is familiar to you. And if it isn't, the work of his organization certainly is. He is Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Every single day, he deals in sobering statistics as anti-Semitic incidents reach an all-time high. How does he stay the course when immersed in this depressing, distressing data? And why does he believe that despite the rise in extremism, there are signs of hope that in some ways, now is the best of times in the history of the Jewish people? Join me on Jonathan's journey and learn how he is bringing his passion, his background in tech and government his spirit of innovation, and his love of the Jewish people to his leadership of the world's leading anti-hate group. Jonathan Greenblatt, welcome to In These Times. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get to the meat of the issues, I'm just interested in how people who deal with hate and anti-Semitism all the time, all day, how do you preserve your sanity? Does it get you down when... You look at all of these cases of extremism in the United States, not only as it relates to the Jewish community, but to our civic life. What goes through your mind? How do you keep your spirits up? What do I do? I mean, I will tell you in all honesty, the best thing that I do was I observe Shabbat hmm. and having one day a week. And I mandated this. It did not used to be the policy at ADL. And I want to be clear for your audience. I'm far from the most observant person in the world. But when I came to ADL, this was a bit of a seven-day work week. And I instituted Shabbat as formal policy. Our offices close early on Fridays. And there is no email, no texting, no calling, no meetings, no writing, nothing on Shabbat. Mm. And I model that behavior because I turn out my computer. Do you give interviews on uh, on Shabbat? No way. No, ne never. No way. The only time we will break Shabbat is when there is an emergency. So, for example, a few weeks ago, we got a call from the FBI about the shooting in Buffalo. And the person who runs our law enforcement program at ADL is a 22-year FBI veteran. He used to run domestic extremism for the Bureau in Washington, D.C. So he got a call. He called my chief of staff. My chief of staff did call me on Shabbat. We broke it and huddled. And then my RD was on a plane flying up to Buffalo before the Shabbat was over. That being said, unless it's a situation like Buffalo or like Pittsburgh or like Poway, we are very, very rigid about observing Shabbat. And I think it's been a very healthy thing for our organization. Now look, on a day-to-day -day basis, I've got my kids who keep me sane, or maybe sometimes make me insane, but generally keep me sane. And I feel blessed to have family and friends, hobbies, things like that. But 
Yeah, the work is challenging. But in all honesty, it's a privilege to do the work. Mm -hmm. I had a situation yesterday when I was on Capitol Hill meeting with a member of Congress from a Midwestern state that does not have a large Jewish population. And I went in to sit with the congressman. My security detail didn't come into the meeting with me. He stayed in the lobby. And I walked out and he said, Mr. Greenblatt, I think you should meet Eleanor. Eleanor was the receptionist, a young woman. And I had said hello and I walked in, but I didn't have a conversation, nor did I identify myself. So he said, Mr. Greenblatt, I think you should meet Eleanor. She'd like to talk to you. I said, well, hello, I'm Jonathan Greenblatt. And she said, I know who you are. Her eyes welled up with tears. Mm. I said, okay, what, what is it? And she then ex proceeded to explain to me how when she was a student in college in Nebraska, she was the victim of an anti-Semitic incident. The university didn't support her, but ADL did. And it changed her life. At a time when she was vulnerable, it made her feel protected. In a moment when she felt unseen, ADL saw her. She ended up transferring to a different university, graduating with a four-year degree. But that interaction at that moment of weakness from ADL gave her strength. She almost started to cry. We took a picture and then as I was leaving, she was texting it to her mom. You know, ADL shows up in moments that matter. I'm glad you said that because on behalf of the Jewish community, we thank you and your staff. It's extremely difficult work. But my position and most of our positions, even those of us who are Jewish professionals, we can step back. We do other things as well. Rabbis do many, many joyous things. We're not completely overwhelmed with the darkest, the most negative elements of the human condition. Somebody's got to do the work. And you do it so well that I just want to express our gratitude to you. Tell us a little bit about your background. You, you have considerable experience in the private sector. You also have considerable experience in government. You worked as an advisor in the Obama administration. To the best of my understanding, this is the first intensive engagement in not-for-profit Jewish work. Tell us about that. Tell us about the transition. Were you nervous about it? What have you learned? How does it inform your day-to-day -day job? So first and foremost, the formative experience in my life was I'm the grandson of a Holocaust survivor from Germany. My grandfather was from Magdeburg, Germany, a town in East Germany. He never went back, like many German Jews, lost almost his entire family. Everything was destroyed. And he was very, very German. I mean, he came here as a young man, but he hated Germany. It's this horrible duality that many survivors live with, right? I mean, my great-grandfather fought in the First World War. My grandfather was deeply German and yet entirely un irreconciled from his German. He would never go back. He refused reparations checks. I mean, it's complicated, but I grew up with that sort of in the background, if you will. He wouldn't talk about it, right? Like many survivors, but it was there. And so when I was a junior in college, I studied abroad in Europe. I had the opportunity to go back to the town in Germany he was from. And to make a long story very short, it was uh, not what I had expected in my kind of idealized 19-year-old brain. When I got there, there were no Jews. There was nothing. And so when I came back to Boston, from, I was at Tufts University. For my senior year, I wanted to do something about anti-Semitism. I heard about this organization, the ADL, and I talked my way into an internship. I actually had some exposure to the organization 
Now, as an intern, Rabbi, I was somewhere south of the receptionist. They didn't even let me answer the phones. I made photocopies <laughs> and got people coffee. I don't want to exaggerate what I was doing, but I say that because it's still really effective. You know, it's interesting too, I should say, by the way, because my grandfather, again, was very German, was reluctant, but, you know, happy American, but he was definitely Jewish. And when I was a young kid, maybe eight or nine, my grandfather took me to protests in Bridgeport, Connecticut to free the Soviet Jews. Because on my grandmother's side, she had family still in the Soviet Union. And so we marched down Park Avenue in Bridgeport to free the Soviet Jews. And then something amazing happened, right, Rabbi? They were freed. Now, there's global reasons why it wasn't because of Jonathan Greenblatt at eight years old marching down Park Avenue, but they were freed. And for me, it alerted me to this idea that I could change the world, that I could be part of something bigger than myself. It really left an imprint. Flash forward 12 years later, after interning at ADL, I went and joined the Clinton for President campaign. I moved down to Little Rock. I thought I would wait tables and volunteer. They ended up hiring me and I worked. I got paid something fairly nominal, but nonetheless, I joined not because I necessarily thought he would win, but I wanted to fight the good fight. Well, then guess what? He did well in the primaries. He named Al Gore. He got the nomination. He ended up winning. This idea that I could be part of a movement that was bigger than me, something that wanted to change the world, that idea that I learned when I was eight or nine was reaffirmed. I would say throughout my entire career, that idea of changing the world has been my North Star. It's why I went to Little Rock. It's why then I went to Washington and stayed. It's why I then went out to Silicon Valley and to California to be part of the internet revolution. I thought that was gonna change the world. It's why I left to start a bottled water company with my roommate from business school that was about helping children get clean water and we sold that to Starbucks. It's why we sold it to Starbucks. We thought that putting our brand on their much bigger kind of retail platform would achieve the scale more quickly than we could do on our own. And that was the best way to deliver on our mission and change the world. It's why I went to a media company that spun out a venture that Google invested in. It's why after that got acquired, I got a call from the Obama White House and my wife and our three kids were pretty happy in California. We had a lovely lifestyle, but like how often do you get the opportunity to serve and work in the West Wing? So I took that because again, I still thought I could change the world. And it's why when I got a call about this job, this job was again, not on my critical path. And in all honesty, when I got the call from a headhunter, I thought I'm not the person they want because A, I'm not even a lawyer, and this is a civil rights organization. I've never worked in the nonprofit world, and this is the top 1% of nonprofits in the United States. And like I'm Jewish, but I, other than that internship, I've never been a part of the formal Jewish world, of the professional communal Jewish space. I keep a kosher home, but so what? That doesn't mean anything. So when I got the call, I didn't know what to do. By the way, I took the interview, I should say, thinking I'm probably not the right person. And this isn't really what I want to do. I want to go back to California. I want to go make money again. I want to go invest in the kind of companies I know how to build. But I uh, took the interview because I knew how important ADL was, Rabbi. I thought maybe I could share some of my thoughts 
like what I'd learned throughout business, what I'd learned inside Starbucks, what I'd learned inside Google, what I'd learned inside the West Wing and share my ideas on innovation and entrepreneurship and scale and impact with the search committee. One thing led to another and I ended up getting offered the job and I didn't know what to do. So I called my rabbi, God's honest <laughs> truth. He's very sage and very thoughtful. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. This mm -hmm. is a call to service. Mm -hmm. So I thought I would come to this job and I would do it maybe for a year or two and then come home. The same week that I started rabbi was the week that Donald Trump announced his candidacy in July of 2015. And it's like the wheels came off the country. <laughs> so the job has certainly been like being in a car, speeding down the highway without any brakes for almost seven years. And so it's mm. been quite a ride. That's really fascinating. I resonate in particular to this drive to impact on the world, to influence on the world. It's a very Jewish drive. It's embedded in the very essence of our tradition. And it's easy to get cynical about that. I've been a, in the professional Jewish world for over 30 years, and I still kick myself with respect to the ability to invest my entire career in good stuff and trying to make the world a better place, to influence other people, to make their lives a little better, to be with them when life is difficult for them. So I completely resonate with that. It reflects the best of Jewish values. In terms of your actual day-to-day -day activities, do you find the not-for-profit world fundamentally different from, say, government or private entrepreneurship? You cannot help but be incredibly inspired by the commitment and the passion and the relentlessness of people in the nonprofit sector. Professional and volunteers, right? 100%. Yeah. But on the professional side, these are people who forego the job security of the government and the profit maximization model of the private sector and devote themselves like you, if you will, in the clergy or like my staff. I have so much respect for the people who put themselves on the firing line and choose this line of work. It is not easy. It can be punishing. It certainly, again, is not the most financially rewarding, but I am amazed. Now, at the same time, what I'm trying to do here at ADL is to bring what I learned about innovation, scale, partnerships, impact, what I've learned about trying to have the best disciplines from the business side with the public service mentality that you see on the government side to make ADL a best of class organization, not just in the Jewish community, of course we should do that. I want us to be world class across the nonprofit sector. Let me ask you, how, how are we doing on anti-Semitism in the United States? How are we doing on racism in the United States? Where do we stand? Well, like to evoke Charles Dickens, it's the best of times and the worst of times. It's the best of times for the Jewish people. And I'm going to speak of America. Of course, the presence of a sovereign Jewish state in our ancestral homeland cannot be understated. I think much of the confidence we live with today as a people, we can attribute to Zionism and the extraordinary achievement of the state of Israel. But I'm going to put that aside for just a minute. It's the best of times for Jews here in America in ways that would just 
astonish, not like our ancient ancestors, but like two generations ago, we have achieved at the highest levels to think that the second gentleman is Jewish, to think that the majority leader of the Senate is Jewish, that you have Jews on the Supreme Court, that you have Jews in treasury and state. They're not there because they're Jews. That's simply incidental, but it demonstrates how we've been able to achieve in extraordinary ways in public service, let alone in the private sector. Jewish people have excelled in business. We've excelled in public service. We've excelled in so many fields. It's remarkable. And if you look at attitudes, Jews are one of, if not the most respected religious minority in the U.S., according to third parties like Pew. And the ADL has been doing sentiment analyses about anti-Semitism in America since the 1960s. We look at not the Jewish people, but the non-Jewish population, their attitudes toward Jews. Whereas when we started doing this work in the 60s, roughly 30% of the American people held what we would consider anti-Semitic views. Today, that number is down in the range of 10% over 50 years. That is amazing and like cannot be understated. There are no quotas keeping us out of universities in theory. There are no restrictions on where we can live, etc. In many ways, it is the best of times for the Jewish people in America. And yet, in many ways, things are very concerning. Anti-Semitic incidents, which were on a decline from 2001 to roughly 2015, spiked in 2016, 34%. They then went up in 2017, a whopping 54% increase, or maybe 57% year over year. It dipped slightly in 2019, but that was the year of the most violent anti-Semitic incident in American history, the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. It then went back up in 2019, and that was the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents we had ever tracked. The number then in 2020, when the country closed because of COVID, college campuses shut down, businesses were shuttered. All of us were at home socially distancing. We expected the number of anti-Semitic incidents to plummet. And it did go down 5%. It was still the third highest total we'd ever tracked. When you say uh, anti-Semitic incidences, do you mean physical incidences or are you also counting verbal online stuff? Good question. So law enforcement looks at what you might consider physical incidents, like misdemeanors and felonies, acts of vandalism or violence. The ADL, we track that and we also track acts of harassment. When your child gets bullied at school, that doesn't involve the police, but it will involve ADL. When your elderly Orthodox Jewish family is walking to shul and somebody screams at them on the sidewalk, that might not get the attention of law enforcement, but it gets our attention. So we look at harassment, which could include bullying or threats. We have 25 offices across the United States and my 400 employees are on the ground, in the field, doing the work, meaning we get reports from our offices or they come through our offices. Maybe it's a synagogue like Stephen Wise, where the ED will call us or a member will call us or a 
someone in the clergy will call us and say something happened to a member of my congregation. Or maybe it's a law enforcement officer who will call us and say, hey, we just heard about this incident. You should know about it. Or maybe an individual will say, hey, my child was bothered. Or a principal or a teacher will call us and say a student was harassed. We investigated by staff over 9,600 incidents in 2021. And yet in the final tally, we counted 2,717 anti-Semitic incidents. So that is demonstrably less than they initially came in because we investigate everything meticulously, thoroughly. We don't want to report what isn't anti-Semitic. And at the same time, that number, 2,717, Rabbi, that is the highest number we have ever seen in 42 years of doing this work. And by the way, in 2021, Donald Trump was out of office for 325 some odd days of the year. Can't blame it on him, as a lot of people might like to. And we could talk about President Trump's role, because I think he was a singular, sinister force in enabling extremism. But that being said, the reality is we've seen the normalization of anti-Semitism. Yes, from the extreme right. Yes, from like the anti-Zionist radical left. But more so just day to day, people need to realize this isn't just a partisan issue. It's become a pedestrian problem. And it's gone from being what one could consider a pandemic to endemic. And that is something we should not accept and we have got to work to change. Jonathan, when you say um, anti-Semitism's been normalized now, which accounts for a lot of the increase of anti-Semitic incidences that you track, what do you mean by that? Turn on Fox News, Tucker Carlson show, and you are likely to hear about the Great Replacement Theory. Now, he might launder that and not essentially say, I took this from a website from white supremacists. He might not blame it on a cabal of Jews, but this notion that there is a small group of people manipulating events in order for their own gain, that is straight out of the protocols of the elders of Zion, Rabbi. And it has now become talking points. I got a question yesterday, remember, Congress about George Soros. I would say, how do I criticize George Soros? Can I do that even? I said, of course you can. I don't agree with everything George Soros does, but you need to do it in a fact-based manner. When people conjure visions that he's paying migrants to travel from Central America in order to, again, enable white genocide. I mean, are you nuts? The idea that he's the hidden hand behind all of the nefarious events, this is straight out of the Der Sturmer playbook. This is the normalization of anti-Semitism. And when people show up at school board meetings wearing yellow stars and claiming that they're suffering like the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto, that kind of trivialization of the Holocaust creates an environment in which it is okay to say Jews are Nazis. These are all examples of this normalization. I don't think you see this directed against other marginalized communities. We're living in a moment where people rail against that, but the normalization of anti-Semitism is so scary because we know what happens when I say we know what happens, we have, I don't know, 2,000 years of history. We know what happens 
when anti-Semitism is normalized, when Jews are targeted, we know how this story ends. It's not some, oh, it's a mystery. This is actually not a mystery, Rabbi. This book has been written again and again throughout our history in Europe, in the Middle East, and now I worry about North America. When you talk about normalization, normalizing anti-Semitism, you're not necessarily only talking about the reaction to a specific event, like the widespread revulsion after the shooting at the Tree of Life. What you're talking about is a context that encourages and to a certain degree justifies acts of extremism. And that context is, if I can ask you, is from your perspective, is not getting better. You seem to be saying it's getting worse. I am very concerned. I think there are some macro trends that are driving it. Certainly we know in times of economic turmoil, Jews are often targeted. Scapegoating, I think, is part of the human condition, if you will, right? Particularly when systems are failing. And so sometimes that scapegoating might be almost unintentional. Sometimes it's very deliberate, where leaders will say it's their fault. It's George Soros's fault. It's the state of Israel's fault. And we see that with increasing regularity in ways that I think are terrifying. And in a moment when the country is polarized, when the gap between the haves and the have-nots seems to be growing, I think communities are very vulnerable to being entranced by the easy answers offered by scapegoats, by the simple solutions offered by playing into stereotypes. We Jews, we're right out of central casting. It's been done to us over centuries, over millennia, by the church, by the crown, by the caliphate. Talk to us about the anti-Semitism of the right and the anti-Semitism of the left. There's a discussion in the Jewish community, which is worse. I don't know if that's a productive discussion at all. I think we as Jews, we're a complex people. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we lock ourselves into this kind of frame. It's this or that, either or. This is essential to Talmud, right? Our whole practice is based on commentary. Our whole tradition is based on nuance and the notion that we take Torah and we interpret it relative to the times in which we live and try to get to the essence of what the word means. So I say that in order to qualify my comments because I don't think it's healthy when people in our own community, let alone commentators and others, try to say, okay, it's this or that. Because the reality is anti-Semitism as this endemic phenomenon, it's like water. You pour water in a cup and it takes one shape. You pour water on the table, it takes another shape. So anti-Semitism is like that. It doesn't lend itself to some cookie cutter, easy, this is a right or left thing. That being said, I do worry a great deal about what we could call the anti-Semitism of the extreme right in as much as I would say to you that white nationalism is a deep and serious danger, not just to the Jewish community, but to our country. The anti-Semitism of the extreme right is like a category five hurricane, Rabbi, that will bear down on you. It will destroy your home while you are hunkered down in the basement, and it will blow apart the building, and it will kill anyone in its path. And indeed, the quote-unquote extreme rights 
tendency toward violence is well documented. They want to murder us in the pews where we pray. They want to kill us in the houses where we live. And this is what they do. If you look at the history in the United States of extremist-related violence, right-wing extremists are responsible for far more violence and particularly murders than any other form of extremism. There's sort of a straight line from Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us, that runs through Pittsburgh, that runs through Poway, that lands with the guys marauding through our nation's capital wearing Camp Auschwitz sweatshirts and with decals that said six million wasn't enough. The singular threat of violence posed by white supremacists cannot be understated. It is a clear and present danger by every measure. That being said, the anti-Semitism, if you will, of the far left is more like climate change. Over time, slowly but surely, the temperature is rising and some people ignore it, some dismiss it, some deny it, some think we can adapt to it, but at the end of the day, it is creating an environment which is simply inhospitable for life as we know it. And it creates an environment in which those Category 5 hurricane-type storms happen with more frequency. And it creates an environment in which we can no longer live as our whole selves in the way that we once thought about it. Historically, the extreme right shows up in the form of rabbi. The Jewish people are illegitimate. The Jewish people don't belong. The Jewish people are committing white genocide. The anti-Semitism of the radical left says, I have no problem with the Jewish people. It's the Jewish state that's illegitimate. The Jewish state doesn't belong. The Jewish state is committing Palestinian genocide. Your ability to do like a search and replace on Jewish people, Jewish state, right, left, is remarkable. All of this, whatever that original source, contaminates the public conversation. And it impacts and helps to shape the way that the large majority of people with a favorable impression toward the Jews in abstract, in practice, start to think about these things. Yeah, maybe there are Jewish financiers who are now responsible for what's happening in the economy, like George Soros or Sheldon Adelson or others. Yeah, maybe it is the Jewish state that is responsible for all the world's ills. And these things start to take hold. And that's what I worry deeply about, because at the end of the day, I'm so grateful and so awed by the fact that the Jews are the most respected religious minority. But Rabbi Hirsch, we're here in Manhattan. This is a bubble. This is Oz. This is Atlantis. This is some fantastical place. Many Americans, I don't know that I have the ability to say most, but a large plurality of Americans have probably never even met a Jewish person. So their attitudes towards us in the abstract are interesting, but I'm more concerned with the reality. And the reality leads me to say those call-outs of George Soros are anti-Semitic and dangerous. Your anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic and dangerous because I don't have time at ADL to live in the abstract or to fantasize in the abstract. I have to live in reality. And reality is a scary place. I find that to be so creative, what you said about white racism that is like a hurricane bearing down on you and anti-Zionism is like climate change. 
I never heard that analogy before. I think it's brilliant, Jonathan. So let me ask you this. What is your message to the anti-Zionist Jews who are contributing to this climate change? It is certainly fair to say that there are Jewish people who join these anti-Zionist groups, and I will not dignify them by even mentioning them by name. I'm going to say that right up front. There are Jews in these movements who say, I am here because of my Jewish values. It is my Jewish values that compels me to take this position. I get that, but they need to recognize that they are part of a tradition of delegitimization that didn't start in 1948, didn't start with the Basel Convention. It started thousands of years before. Delegitimization is one of these anti-Semitic tropes, Rabbi, that has been with us for a long time. The Jewish state now just gives you a convenient target for it that can be wrapped into the current political discourse as if it were okay. But the anti-Zionist lexicon is straight out of the Soviet Union. It wasn't invented in Brooklyn. It wasn't invented in Ramallah or even in Tehran. It was invented in Moscow by KGB disinformation experts who developed this notion, who tried to glom onto the dialogue about civil rights in the U.S. They didn't start studying us under Putin. They started studying us under Stalin. And so they looked at the civil rights language of the 50s and 60s and tried to take that and use that against us. And so the Zionism is racism construct came from them. This language, this anti-imperialist language came from them, the Soviet empire, ironically. That's what these people are recycling today. Tired old tropes from like Soviet apparatchiks, but they have new life in this moment. And it's so ironic at a time when we have an Islamist party in the Israeli government, at a time when Israel is making, I mean, read The Economist this week about the inroads between ordinary Moroccans and ordinary Israelis. And yet it is again, this new era of rejectionists here at home, pushing this stuff out. So to those Jewish young people, I would say, I understand your impulse, but realize you have bought a ticket on a bus that is a road to nowhere. I will say this, and I mean this in all sincerity, when I hear about Orthodox Jews walking to shul and people putting their heads out the cars and screaming at them, stop killing people in Palestine, that's anti-Zionism 101. And when I hear something like the Mapping Project that blames a random synagogue in Newton, Massachusetts on colonizing Palestine and says it should be, quote, dismantled and disrupted, that is anti-Zionism 101. Irrespective of the intent of that Jewish person, intent matters, don't get me wrong. Intent is very important. But ultimately, as the head of the ADL, I don't know what's in the, in the head or even in the heart of the person who bludgeons a Jewish boy to death in Orange County, as happened a few years ago. What's in the head of the heart of a black Hebrew Israelite who shoots up a supermarket in Jersey City and murders three people, as happened a few years ago. I don't know what's in the head or the heart of the individual who bursts into a synagogue in Colleyville, Texas, and takes the rabbi and three other people hostage. I really don't know, and I don't have time to care, because my job is fighting anti-Semitism and helping to deal with the victims and the families and the community affected by those acts of hate. 
So even if it isn't your intent, you still, as a human being, have a responsibility for the outcome of your actions. And that's the reality that we have to deal with at ADL every single day. And those examples of anti-Zionism 101, they're also anti-Semitism 101? Of course. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Now, to be clear, I got a call the other day, Rabbi, from the lay chair of a Jewish organization, and he said, I really want to talk to you about this speech you gave recently where you said that all criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. I said, oh, great, we're going to have a very short conversation. I never said that. <laughs> I never said that. So this can be a very short conversation because it's true, as we were saying before, relative to all things Jewish, nuanced. You could certainly critique the state of Israel on any number of things. And frankly, as a Zionist, and I am an unapologetic, unabashed, enthusiastic Zionist, because I deeply believe in the rights of the Jewish people to self-determination in their ancestral homeland. And that Zionism compels me to also support a Palestinian state where Palestinians can live with dignity, with equality, with safety, as we ensure that Israelis enjoy those same privileges in a Jewish state of their own. Call me out of fashion. Call me naive. I believe in a two-state solution. So I don't think there is any contradiction to being pro-Palestinian and being Zionist. But what I will say is that the anti-Zionist is not pro-Palestinian. The anti-Zionist is anti-Israel, first and foremost. Because anti-Zionism is not about a philosophy of creating a homeland so that Palestinian people can enjoy the right to self-determination. Anti-Zionism as a philosophy is about the negation of that Jewish right. That's what it is. Anti-Zionism is not about building. It's about destroying. It's not about creating. It's about erasing. And so I think for those people who say, like, my Judaism compels me to be this way, I think it is irresponsible not to recognize the outcome of your actions. You can criticize policies or practices of any government in the world. And if you care about your government, you probably should do that because you want it to be better. But the last thing I would say to the anti-Zionist, I think it is an argument, Rabbi, to use a term in vogue, steeped in privilege. I don't think you could find a Ukrainian Jew who is anti-Zionist. I don't think you could find an Iranian Jew who is anti-Zionist. I don't think you could find an Ethiopian Jew who is anti-Zionist. Those people who are anti-Zionist sitting in their perch in Park Slope, opining in a coffee shop in Berkeley. Wow, that must be a luxury. Maybe one day, inshallah, I should be so gifted as to have no worries and I can impose my moralization on the world. But in the place where I live, where Jews are endangered, Zionism isn't just, I think, a moral cause, although it is. Zionism is a human imperative that I deeply believe in. Jonathan, I want to thank you for all of the work you do on behalf of not only the ADL, but on behalf of the Jewish community and on behalf of American society. So we wish you well. Consider us your friend. We look forward to working with you extensively in the future as well. Well, God willing, next time in person, okay? This has been a scintillating conversation. 
I've been a Jewish professional for over three decades. But since Jonathan was not part of the organized Jewish communal leadership before assuming leadership in the ADL, I never had the opportunity to sit down with him for an extended period of time. He is the most impressive Jewish leader. We're fortunate to have him in the ADL on behalf of the Jewish community. He and his team have the emotionally draining job of dealing with hate all day, every day. We owe them an enormous debt of gratitude. I was especially moved by Jonathan's descriptions of the kinds of anti-Semitism that are increasing in American society. While trying to be cautious in our terminology, he described what we can loosely call right-wing anti-Semitism, mixed in with white nationalism, and left-wing anti-Semitism that focuses on Israel. Jonathan analogized right-wing anti-Semitism to a storm, a Category 5 hurricane. It bears down on you quickly and with great ferocity, and it will kill everyone in its path, even in your own shelter where you're seeking to ride out the storm. The anti-Semitism of the left is akin to climate change, slow and gradual, often unnoticed and unattended, steadily raising the temperature of Jew hatred and normalizing it, thus poisoning the atmosphere of freedom and tolerance. Like climate change, some people dismiss and deny it, but this form of anti-Semitism is creating an environment in which we can no longer live as our whole selves. What a brilliant and creative observation. Jonathan emphasized that the singular threat of violence posed by white supremacists cannot be understated. The anti-Semitism of the extreme right is lethal. They are responsible for more violence and murder than any other form of extremism. These are violent racists who hate many people, not only Jews. They hate African Americans and Muslim Americans. They hate Hispanics. They hate immigrants. They hate minorities. They are the ones who burst into Jewish institutions intent on carnage. It is the anti-Semitism of the Pittsburgh attack. It is the anti-Semitism of the Poway attack. It is the anti-Semitism of Charlottesville. It is often deadly in its outcome. It is easier to identify. These haters do not attempt to hide their hatred. To the contrary, they write malignant manifestos of malevolence. The Jew hatred of the left focuses not on Jews per se, but on the Jewish state. It employs all the same tried and true anti-Semitic tropes, that Zionism is a racist ideology, that Israel is a colonial enterprise, a white supremacist entity whose intent is to subjugate and persecute an indigenous minority, they accuse Israel of all of the worst sins against liberalism that can be imagined. Ethnic cleansing, apartheid, war crimes, crimes against humanity. It's fascinating to me that Jews manage to unite the extreme right and the extreme left. They are on opposite sides of the political and religious spectrum on practically everything else, but fold into each other at the extremes, overlapping in agreement on their hatred of Jews and often using the same language. One calls it, Jews will not replace us. The other calls it, Israel will not replace us. For the anti-Semites of the right, Jews invented communism. For the anti-Semites of the left, Jews are rapacious capitalists. Both think that for Jews it's all about the Benjamins, all about money and exploitation. Both accuse Jews of disloyalty. Both right-wing and left-wing anti-Semites boycott Jews and Jewish businesses. Both think that Jews have mystical powers to manipulate society, that there's some kind of international plot 
to pull the strings of the world for the enrichment of the Jews. From the right, it is the charge that there is a Jewish cabal, the elders of Zion. From the left, it is Israel, the Zionist elders, hypnotizing the great powers. Jews are not the only hated group. The very impulses that lead to the killing of Jews in prayer also lead to the killings of Christians in prayer and Muslims in prayer. That said, anti-Semitism is distinctly and uniquely different. For sure, it is on the spectrum of racisms of all types, but it is the most dangerous social virus in the history of civilization. It spreads like a plague. It is highly contagious. It will infect every healthy social organism within the contagion zone, weakening society's defenses and devastating the body politic. As Jonathan emphasized, we know what happens when anti-Semitism is normalized and Jews are targeted. We know how this story ends. This book has been written again and again and again. A word to fellow Jews, to our children and grandchildren who are anti-Zionist Jews, to our young Jews, I urge you, I plead with you, give some consideration to what Jonathan said. Of course, criticism of Israel, even harsh criticism, is not on its own anti-Semitic. That is a fiction put out by those opposed to the Zionist project. But anti-Zionism is not about advancing the rights of the Palestinians. It is about negating the Jewish right to a homeland. It is not about building, but destroying. It is about erasing. Do not contribute to climate change that will degrade Jewish life and will eventually harm you as well. By all means, pursue legitimate criticism of Israel. There's plenty to criticize and improve. Israel is still a young democracy. All caring and contributing members of society should be critical of governmental policies of any country that do not reflect our values. Speak truth to power. That is the heart of the Jewish experience and is at the heart of the democratic process. But don't forget, never forget, that Jews are a minuscule percentage of the human race. There are 2 billion Christians, 1.6 billion Muslims, 1 billion Hindus, and 15 million Jews on a good day. All of the world's Jews could fit into one Shanghai neighborhood. We are a tiny people about whom much of the world has ambivalent feelings. We lost a third of our people in the mid-20th century and under the most optimistic projections, will not recover that number of Jews who lived on the eve of World War II until the middle of this century, a hundred years after the Holocaust. To all of our anti-Zionist Jewish millennials and Gen Xers, I urge you to pull back and look at the bigger picture of the changing climate for Jews, whatever your intent. Know the implications and understand the outcome of your actions. Do not give aid and comfort to those who hate our people. In the end, Jewish history is your history. The Jewish future is your responsibility. Jewish destiny is your responsibility. Jewish life is your responsibility. Until next time, this is In These Times.